Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through Ephesians, and in the previous message I was in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. I was explaining in the previous message that Paul refers to the Ephesians in verse 2, who were recognized as the Gentiles, the non-Jews. These were people who did not have that much exposure to the law of God, the Mosaic law. The Jews, on the other hand, they were recognized as a people who were, for the most part, were living in obedience to the law of God, or at least living with the knowledge of their God and an idea with regards to what was good and what was evil, as God would define it. But the Ephesians... They were of the Gentile world, the other nations, who did not have the law of God or lived by it. And so by default, because they did not have the law of God, they were recognized as a group of people who lived for the indulgence of the flesh. The Jews, on the other hand, were somewhat identified as a group of people who would live for the restraint of the flesh. But I was explaining at the end of the previous message that even those who live for the restraint of the flesh, are going to fail, and they're going to sin just as much as anybody else would. And in some cases, they might even be sinning a little bit more. It just depends on the individual. But what Paul expresses here at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 is that it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter at all, because everyone will struggle with the issue of sin, Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, he speaks to the Ephesians. He says, you, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. What was this way? It was in trespasses and sins. Continuing in verse 2, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Well, who are the sons of disobedience? Those who disobey. They disobey what? They disobey the law of God. They engage in trespasses and sins. And it doesn't matter if they know what they are disobeying or not. That has no relevance. The person who engages in sin is going to be recognized as one who is of the sons of disobedience. But then continuing into verse 3, Paul refers to the us, refers to himself, refers to The Jews, in effect, everybody who's not included in verse 2. In verse 3, he says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So verse 2 and verse 3 describes everybody. Everybody 
is recognized as being of the sons of disobedience. Everyone is recognized as being children of wrath. It doesn't matter whether you live for the intentional indulgence of the flesh or you live for the restraint of the flesh. The end result will still be the same. For those who live for the indulgence of the flesh, it's easy for people to identify that and say, oh yes, that is being disobedient and that is living for the fulfillment of the desires of the flesh and of the mind and these people are children of wrath. It's easy for people to identify that. That's not difficult. What's difficult for many people is recognizing that those who live for the restraint of the flesh are going to find themselves in the same kind of position. And the reason why it's difficult difficult for those who are religious, is because they really want to believe that if they only know what is good and evil, then they can be a good person. They can be a good Christian. They can be like Jesus, or by default, they can be like God. It is the same message that caused the fall of humanity. It is the first sermon of the devil. Do what is right, do not do that which is wrong, and you can be like God. Those who decide that they are going to be devoted to that way of life, they in general will not want to admit that they're trying to be like God, and so they will say something a little bit different. They'll say things like, well, I'm trying to be like Jesus. You know, what would Jesus do? And I'll just do that. It's the same thing. It goes into the same direction of living a life for the purpose of restraining the flesh. But what is that really going to do? There are four fundamental ways that a life like this will increase sin. And it, of course, depends on the person, but there are four fundamental ways. And I was describing this at the end of the previous message. The first way is through the natural rebellion of humanity. The people will just simply rebel because of our desire to be independent and our desire to be an individual our desire to be our own God, it really depends on the person. Not everyone responds to the declaration of what is right and wrong, good or evil, or the law. Not everyone responds to a law being imposed on them in this way. Some people will embrace it just fine. Other people will just ignore it. But there are people who will respond by saying, oh, now don't be telling me what not to do or what to do. I'm going to do the exact opposite, you know, just because. Because who do you think you are? You know, that kind of an attitude. Another way that the law will stir up sin is by giving people things to think about that they would not likely have ever thought about before anyway. Paul gave this example in his letter to the Romans when he was speaking about coveting, that he would have not known what it was to covet until the law was presented to him that said, do not covet. And it stirred up within him every covetous desire because, of course, you have to think about, well, what should I not be coveting? And then you identify that item that you should not be coveting. And then sure enough, you start thinking, gosh, you know, but that seems kind of attractive, kind of appealing. And then next thing you know, you are engaged in coveting. And so just by the knowledge of good and evil, just by the knowledge being informed, being presented with what you should not be doing, you can be tempted just by that, just by thinking about those things. The law will stir up sin in some people's lives in this way. And it will, of course, just depend on the law because there are some things that people are not tempted by at all and other things they are tempted by. It really depends on the individual. 
The third way that the law will stir up sin is through religious pride, because there will eventually be something that somebody believes that they have succeeded in being obedient to. More than likely, this will be something that they are not tempted by anyway, some kind of law that they are able to obey, because it's easy for them to obey. But what happens is, is that a person esteems a tremendous amount of pride through that, and the way that they will relate to other people will be a reflection of this religious pride. For example, if they feel that they have found a way to successfully overcome some particular sin of some kind, well, then there will be other people around them who probably have not overcome this particular sin. So the way that they will relate to these people is first by, of course, comparing themselves with these other people by saying, you know, at least I'm not like you. I'm somebody else. I'm somebody greater, somebody special. Well, they might be impressive to some people, but most people are going to know full well that this may not be something that they struggle with, but there will be many other things that they do struggle with. And so for most people, this is not going to be impressive at all. But it's still the attitude that gets presented to other people is this expression of superiority, this expression of pride, and they will effectively step on other people in order to elevate themselves. This is the beginning of how they will be mean to other people, how they will be rude and unloving to other people. This is where these things usually begin. Another response that a person might have is to help someone else. You know, I'm going to help you. Don't worry. I have found a way to overcome this sin, whatever it is, and you obviously need some help with this. Don't worry. I will be the person in your life who will guide you and lead you and help you to overcome just as I have. All right. Well, what happens when the person fails? Well, then the religious person is going to condemn that other person. They're going to express disappointment. They're going to break some fellowship with them, perhaps, to some degree. They're going to execute some form of punishment, because that is exactly how they believe God relates to them. So they will relate to others in the same way, and this will be an expression of religious pride as this person, whoever this is, expresses rejection towards these other people who just can't get it right, you know, like they could. This is another way that the religious pride of an individual who believes that they have found a way to live in obedience to the law can begin to manifest, can get started, and people like this become mean, cruel people towards others. In many ways, they feel it is not only justified by this person's failure, but that they are required by God in order to participate in the wrath of God on this person's life in various ways that they would expect God to relate to people. And so religious pride can be an opportunity for the manifestation of a lot of different sins, and tracking these sins back to the religious pride can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge because there is the appearance of holiness and righteousness and all these other kinds of religious things that will tend to get in the way. And for the most part, people are just not interested in participating in those kinds of discussions, and so they just simply abandon relationships with other people who live for the restraint of the flesh. Because for the most part, it just isn't worth it. And if you did pursue that, and if you had some success in explaining to this person that they were not as impressive as they thought they were, 
Well, then there's all kinds of other ways that people respond to that in order to avoid any need for any corrections whatsoever. And this is one of the ways that religious people are recognized as being some of the meanest people you will ever run across in your life. The other way that the law will stir up sin is when you are rejected by your God for your failure. So you have the religious pride when you believe that you have succeeded. But when you know that you have failed, well, what are you going to do now? Because you know that your God, or at least you believe, that your God rejects you because of your failure. He does not accept you. He is ashamed of you. He's going to be out of fellowship with you. There are many ways that people will describe the separation that happens between you and your God because of your sin. But this is a separation that happens in your own mind. It's not something that really happens in reality between you and God. It's something that people believe in their own minds. And they tell other people, and those people believe in their own minds that God is not accepting them, loving them. He is not with them. He is not working with them. He's not willing to guide them and lead them into all truth and to meet the deepest needs that they have within their hearts, such as love and acceptance, which in general are the reasons why people engage in sin to begin with. It's because we have deep needs within us that we are trying to get met in inappropriate and dysfunctional ways. But when you fail and you have the belief that God has turned his back on you because of that, you know, because you don't have your flesh under control, well, then obviously the only way you're going to get back in fellowship with him is if you get your flesh under control. There are, of course, sacramental and sacrificial ways and ceremonial ways that people try to get back into fellowship with God. Confession, for example, is one way that people will do that. You know, just apologize. Say you're sorry and you're not going to do it anymore. But you know you will. And when you do, well, then what? And so eventually people get tired of this act of wandering around in the wilderness of sin, confession, repentance, forgiveness, sin, confession, repentance, forgiveness, and they never get anywhere because there is nowhere to go with that, especially when you still have the deep-rooted need to be loved and accepted. What are you going to do? You have to go to the world. You have to turn to the world because there is no alternative. And what does that mean? That means you have to engage in more sin. Indulge your flesh in some way. And so when a person fails, it will then increase sin in many ways for many people. It will increase sin because you need a break from all the religious pressure that you're under. These are the effects of the law. The law stirs up sin within a person. It does not help a person restrain their flesh it instead results in a person indulging their flesh more and more. Now, like I said, there are some things that people are just simply not tempted by at all. And when they decide to live a life of obedience, you know, repentance and obedience to the law, in some respect, they will generally embrace those laws that are easier to obey, those things that they are able to handle just fine, or avoid those kinds of sins that they're not tempted by anyway. This is a deception. It is a deception that people embrace to at least say, from a comparative point of view, that they're more holy than other people who don't even try. But the end result will always be an increase in sin. And so this is why in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul refers to the Ephesians as you 
and he refers to the Jews as the we, that it doesn't matter who you are, because if you have the law, it's going to increase sin. If you do not have the law, well, then of course you've got an increase in sin by default. But not only that, but the Ephesians, the people, other people in the world, they do have their own system of law, their own standards of what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And their laws that they live by can have the same effect in their lives as the Mosaic law would have if they were to embrace that. So there's no way to get away from it. There's no escape from this struggle except for the new life in the new covenant, that you are to be made into a new person, a new creation, one who is spiritually alive. That was verse 1, and Paul is going to repeat it again in verse 5. I'm just about to verse 5. When you are spiritually alive and you are now in the new covenant, there is a new way of life entirely. It is a life of living by the inheritance that you have received in Christ Jesus. As an example, you have received his forgiveness. You have received his acceptance. You have received his love. You now have what you need in order to say no to the temptations of sin. Because the temptations of sin have to do with the desire of a person's heart to be loved and to be accepted. So there's a completely different way of life that is outside of the restraint of the flesh and the indulgence of the flesh. That life has to do with living by the Spirit and living by the inheritance. Even if you were to succeed, what would happen if you succeeded in living in obedience to the Mosaic law or any law for that matter? If you never sinned, If you never sinned, what would that really matter? How would that really make a difference between you and your God? Would you just all of a sudden know all about him? Would you know him as a person, really? Would you really be a participant in the work that he's involved in? He's involved in making new creations. He's involved in the creation of life. What are you involved with? All you're involved with is the restraint of the flesh. That's it. You're about what you're not going to do. God is about what he is going to do. That's what it would look like. That's what would happen if you succeeded in achieving the status of full, complete restraint of the flesh. If you did not sin anymore. Again, what would you have? The measure of your person would only be defined by what you did and by what you didn't do. It would have nothing to do with the person who you know. You may perhaps know yourself, but you certainly have nothing to go on in order to know your God. So the pursuit of this goal doesn't lead anyone anywhere. All it is is one big distraction away from the realities of life, from the reality of what God is engaged in and what he is doing. That's why he says in verse 4, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see anything here about getting your flesh under control? No, it's not about that at all. It's about being made into a new person, having a new identity having a new way of life entirely, 
being made alive to begin with and then having a new way of life, that which is defined by the inheritance you have received. Going back to verse 2, when Paul says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And then in verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. He's talking about these things as past experiences, as past tense. How did the change occur? Paul is speaking to the Ephesians and he's speaking about himself and the other Jews in the context of you once lived in this way for the indulgence of the flesh. You now do not. What made the difference? Was it the law? Was it being informed of what is right and wrong? What is good and evil? Well, the Jews had that. That's verse 3. Of course that doesn't work. Of course it has nothing to do with it. So whether you have the law, you have the knowledge of good and evil, or you don't, if there's going to be a change, it will happen in some other way. It happens through the love of God. It happens through the grace of God. It happens through the mercy of God. He meets the deepest needs of our heart. Those needs that we have that lead us to be tempted by sin, if we will allow him to meet those needs that we have, then we will be able to say no to sin. Now again, the objective is not to just find a way to get all of the sin out of our lives. The objective is to know our God. It is to know his mercy. It is to know his love. It is not to get our flesh under control. It is to know our God. So again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This is repetition from verse 1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's not about the flesh. It's not about trying to figure out how to get the flesh under control, how to get the flesh to behave, how to get all of the sin out of your life. It is about becoming spiritually alive. That is what God accomplished through Jesus. He died for the forgiveness of sins. He resolved the sin issue once and for all, for all time, for all humanity so that he could present to us a new covenant, and that has to do with being made spiritually alive, that we may then live with the love that he has for us, to live being loved by your God, to live being accepted by your God, to have direct communication with him so that he can give you wisdom and understanding in the world that you are a part of, to help you define your purpose in your life in accordance with your relationship with him. But instead, most people are still preoccupied with the flesh. They're still trying to get the flesh under control to do something with the flesh instead of living by the Spirit. When a person devotes themselves to a life that they cannot live, that of restraining the flesh, of doing something with the flesh, they will not be able to rest, they will not be able to know the mercy, the love, and the acceptance of God. They will not know him as a person who relates to them in that way. The closest that they can get to is the idea that one day they will go to heaven, and that's it, and completely miss out on walking in the newness of life. 
and I will continue with this in the next program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net that you may